Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? So we were sitting at the European Council Summit in Brussels and... This is our colleague Hans van der Burchard. And it was just before Christmas and everybody was exhausted. It was the end of the year. But also He's telling us about what some might consider to be one of the most consequential political moments in recent EU memory. Everybody was kind of nervous that this might become a very difficult EU leaders meeting. The European Commission did recommend at the beginning of November the start of accession negotiations for Ukraine and for Moldova. So that is what Viktor Orban is going against in in, uh, pushing back on, let's say, at the start of this very important summit here in Brussels. There had been all these warnings that this summit, because of the blockage, the potential veto of Viktor Orban, that this could just drag out the summit over days. Enlargement is not a theoretical issue. Enlargement is a merit-based, legally detailed process, uh, which has preconditions. We have set up seven preconditions. And even by the evaluation of the Commission, three out of the seven is not fulfilled. So there is no reason to negotiate membership of Ukraine now. Even not to negotiate. Politico's Barbara Moons was also covering that remarkable meeting of EU leaders. So at a certain point, we thought we were going to be there for ages, right? So we were talking about, okay, when should we have dinner? When is the most strategic moment to take a break? And all of a sudden, one of our colleagues sees the suite of Charles Michel, that there's a deal. I thought this is just some troll. Somebody just like wants to make all the journalists reporting something that cannot be true because everybody was just like looking at each other saying like wow how, how is it possible we thought we we're sitting here until saturday at least and they found a deal on opening membership talks with ukraine the european council took the decision uh, to grant an enlargement steps forward and this will be a landmark in our common history we have decided to open accession negotiations with ukraine and with moldova we have decided to the first thing we do, we all pick our foes, we start calling around. We find out that Orban wasn't in the room when the deal was made. Someone did not have to leave the room, but wanted to leave the room. <laughs> so, uh, so This was obviously a huge surprise to us, to the entire press corps. Like You're threatening to veto for days and weeks before, and then you leave the room? There were some outstanding twists and turns at this month's EU summit. German so what we heard in total, Orban was out of the room just for a few minutes. Then we heard that somebody asked him actually to leave the room so that the leaders could take the decision on opening the membership talks with Ukraine because as all the European Council decisions among the leaders has to be done by unanimity and that's where Orban's veto really came in and was blocking everything. People were wondering, did he just leave the room because he 
had to go to the bathroom and then they said let's do it quickly now while he's out uh, and then we of course thought now that couldn't be the real solution there had to be some real deal had been struck there but it was quite a creative solution this had never been done before that a leader who cannot agree to something says i don't want to agree to this simply leaves the room then the others in the meantime decide and the decision has been taken by the european council it's according to the rules but the leader, in this case Orban, who had left, can still say, I didn't approve it. It was against my will, so to say, but I agreed to step out. And then we heard that the person who suggested this very creative solution, so to say, was German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. This is for besondere momente, wie zum Beispiel die Entscheidung, die wir jetzt getroffen haben. It also turned out, of course, that it hadn't been completely spontaneous, that there has been some talk before between Orban and Scholz that they agreed that this would be a face-saving solution for everybody. And this shows that Viktor Orban was just very isolated in the room, that really he had 26 leaders against him, and there Scholz approached them with a solution, they agreed, and then this proposal was made, and Orban left the room. I'm Sarah Wheaton, host of EU Confidential. Some say that this instance in December is a culmination of frustrations brought on by the Hungarian prime minister over the years. And it's not just a difference of opinion on Ukraine. He's often the on man out on other existential political discussions, from migration to EU cash. And he's been repeatedly accused of violating the democratic rules that EU countries agree to follow. Today, we're going to dive deeper into those frustrations and consider how the EU establishment is grappling with the challenges posed by a figure like Viktor Orban. No, 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 it's ridiculous. It's impossible. You know, the, the problem is not a European problem. The problem is a German problem. Nobody would like to stay in Hungary. For us, it's obvious that the battlefield solution does not work. Totally new agriculture will be born out of membership of Ukraine in Europe. Are you ready for that? Are the French peasants ready for that? So many strategical questions. And the crazy part? In December, the EU managed to move forward because Orban left the room. But in a bonkers twist of events this week, European Council President Charles Michel announced he's stepping down early. And that's creating a potential scenario where Viktor Orban himself could actually end up chairing these meetings of EU leaders later this year. So stick with us, because today we'll explore a complex relationship between Brussels and leaders who bend or even break common democratic principles. And we ask ourselves, can the EU actually function like this? We'll hear from EU law expert Alberto Alemano as we analyze a controversial idea that's circulating around town to strip Hungary of some of its decision-making and convening powers in Brussels. And then we'll hear what Budapest has to say with Frank Ferreti, who heads a Hungarian think tank here in Brussels. Brussels is very good at rulemaking, and the kind of rules that it makes are ones that are self-consciously designed to um, control or to manage uh, certain troublemakers. But first, let's start with our panel. Joining me are Barbara Moons, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Sarah. And zooming in from Berlin, our political reporter Hans van der Burchard. Hans, great to have you on the show. Guten Abend. So we heard about that infamous coffee or toilet break that Viktor Orban took at the EU summit at the beginning of the show. And we're going to get further into that. But first, we need to address some more recent news. The pretty shocking decision by Charles Michel that will have consequences for the whole EU bubble. It's kicked off the top's jobs race and the election campaign much earlier than anticipated. Barbara, can you tell us about 
What happened? So Charles Michel on Saturday night announced that he would run for European Parliament elections, which means that he would quit his current job mid-July, which is a problem in the sense that normally he would stay on until December 1st, which gives the European leaders enough time to lay out the top job puzzle after the European elections, and they won't have that time now. Why didn't we see it coming? We saw it coming in the sense that we've been talking for a long time what Charles Michel is going to do next, right? Even the rumor about potentially filling the European Investment Bank post if that didn't get sorted. Meanwhile, his party in Belgium, the Belgian Liberals, were waiting to get an answer from him. Are you going to run for European elections or not? And given that the other scenarios kind of fell through, in the end, he decided to do exactly that. And it triggered a lot of criticism. However, what Michel is saying is that it's actually, you know, sign of democratic accountability and that it's not that odd that you would run during these elections in June. And so what is this job that he's leaving? What Charles Michel does is a position that's relatively recent, right? He's only the third person in the job. His job is really to be the honest broker among European leaders and to make sure that the European councils where European leaders meet have actual results and forge compromises. On the other hand, of course, you also have the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. So that is where the European ministers meet on all their different files like finance, agriculture or tech. And that position switches every six months between a different country, as we now have the Belgians that took over the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. Right. And that's a really important point and sort of a nuance that I will admit I I was reporting in Brussels for like a year and a half before I fully figured out. But um, the difference between the European Council and the Council of the EU will be important for this Orban discussion that we're having. But but first, you know, outside of Belgium, it sounds like really people were caught quite off guard by Michelle's decision. Let's listen to a short clip from our sister podcast, PowerPlay. In this week's episode, Anne McElvoy talks to Latvian Foreign Minister Christianis Karens, who also served as Prime Minister, and he had this reaction. I have to admit that took me a little bit by surprise. I know Charles Michel quite well. The only thing that we know is that uh, in uh, about one year, his term would be over anyway, so he would need to do something else. It's even more interesting that he's announcing now that he's uh, going to do this. The elections are only in, in June. On the other hand, it's a good heads up, and it, it, but it does create a difficulty because I have participated in the European Council last time around. It took us three, four, five days, I think, to negotiate uh, the top jobs, and that was after the parliamentary elections. So it's it's very difficult to imagine how an agreement could be taken before the elections on only one job. You know, inside the Brussels bubble, it's a peculiar uh, challenge. But uh, I certainly wish Charles uh, all the success. I think he's been a quite good uh, council president. So I definitely recommend that you listen to the full conversation with Latvia's foreign minister. We'll put a full link to PowerPlay in our show notes. Okay, so that little tangent aside, Hans, what's the reaction that you're hearing about this in Berlin? Well, in Berlin, German officials are quite upset, actually, because first of all, Berlin was in general not so convinced about the work that Charles Michel has been doing in past years when it comes to organizing European councils. So when this happened, the Germans were like, oh, 
once again, a typical Sean Michel caring more about himself than the job, because there is a risk that if no successor is found until July, when Sean Michel intends to step down, then there would be the leader of the rotating EU presidency, which would then be uh, Viktor Orban taking over. So just imagine Viktor Orban spearheading not just the regular work in the council and the presidency, but also the meetings amongst the leaders at a time where we have a war on the European continent, where Viktor Orban is frequently blocking the EU, especially when it comes to support for Ukraine. So there would, of course, be worst case scenarios. So the Germans are very angry about Michel, actually. What I've also been hearing in Berlin is a rumor that actually Charles Michel might not be so interested in the European Parliament, and maybe he's just looking for a good, um, well, waiting position to then uh, become next Belgian prime minister, because we have Belgium uh, elections as well in June. Right. Okay. So pretty juicy. I have to admit, I love hearing these things about, you know, capitals getting mad at the council president. But, uh, you know, as Hans mentioned, because there would be potentially this vacuum in the role that's supposed to be more kind of permanent and neutral, that would mean that Viktor Orban would really just be the person who could step into this vacuum and potentially complicate the EU's efforts to move forward on various key policy points. So to use the expression, you know, past is prologue, we've seen a lot of run-ins between Orban and sort of the Brussels establishment. Hans, you know, are there any particular disputes or, or feuds that seem most emblematic to you between Orban and the majority of the EU 27? Well, there is, of course, a recurring discussion or dispute between Orban and the rest of the EU um, about the money. Billions of funds have been blocked over the rule of law concerns in Hungary. So Viktor Orban quite creatively uses his veto power in the council, but also amongst leaders in the European Council, to block all sorts of decisions. We've had him blocking a minimum tax proposal. We've had him blocking support for Ukraine several times. Currently, he's objecting to um, the civilian aid package, 50 billion of EU money that Ukraine should get. And there's a lot of frustration among amongst other EU leaders that Hungary again and again takes the EU hostage. The next hostage moment um, is coming up in early February when we're expecting a European Council summit to talk about releasing much-needed funds to Ukraine. Barbara, do you th is Orban going to take another another bathroom break? I think we're kind of at this decisive moment with Orban. I mean, he has been a troublemaker for years, right? As Hans said, the December European Council, when they had to decide both on the accession negotiations with Ukraine and then over the Ukraine money, was such a key moment in the relation between Orban and the other 26. It really isolated him. And after that, a lot of European capitals started to think, how do we deal with Orban in the long term? So that's a discussion that is going on behind the scenes. In the short term, we have this February 1st European Council, as you mentioned, that really has to make a decision on the money for Ukraine as Kiev badly needs it. There is a lot of discussion about potentially, you know, pushing Hungary into a compromise. But at the same time, the EU is also clearly preparing a scenario where the 26 countries would agree on the money without Hungary which would be a very important precedent, right? I mean, European budget is a key thing. It's not just any decision. In the end, everything comes down to the money and the budget. So if you admit that you cannot longer agree on such key issues, 
amongst 27, then that also undermines your credibility as a European project. A lot depends on this decision and a lot of negotiations are going on to at least try to have a deal with 27, so Orban included. Well, it's interesting that they're looking to sort of leave Hungary out of this decision. There have been various people calling to just leave Budapest out of any decision to basically take away their voting rights, uh, you know, arguing that that's sort of what the treaties say should be done when there's a breach of EU law. And we hear a lot of talk about this Article 7 thing. Hans, can you maybe like walk us through what Article 7 is? So the Article 7 is the ultimate sanctions mechanism in the EU. So when all countries, minus the one country that is supposed to be sanctioned, agree that this one country should be sanctioned. They, they can invoke this Article 7. It has to go through quite a lot of hoops. But then ultimately, this country will be stripped of its voting rights. And that would take this veto power away from Viktor Orban. He could no longer object in the Council or the European Council. And arguably, that would make a procedures in the EU much more smooth, but it's also considered as a nuclear option because it's really the most radical option. And um, Barbara just mentioned that Viktor Orban is so isolated now in the European Council, and this matters here because before he had a strong ally on his side, and there was Poland with a peace government. So Viktor Orban and the Polish government, they were giving each other cover before, but now since Warsaw has basically flipped in his camp of the good guys, if you at least see it from a rule of law perspective, then you could invoke this procedure and Viktor Orban would be isolated. But so far, at least amongst EU leaders, there is no appetite yet to go really and trigger this Article 7. I think so far what they're trying to do is still getting Orban somehow on board because things would definitely go nasty if you do it this way. It's a nuclear option and it's been titled this way, not without a reason. There were also some fears that this would backlash internally in Hungary so that it would actually give Orban more ammunition to say, look, Brussels is against us, the EU is against us, we have to pick up the fight. And it kind of coincides with the discussions that are going on now about what his potential long game is, right? Within Hungary, he's so strong, but now you can see how he's also stepping up the communication within the EU, in English, towards other countries, going into the European elections where we have an expected surge of the far right, also towards the November elections in the US with you know potential return of Donald Trump, which would strengthen Orban you know, within the EU and internationally. So that is a scenario that people think about, take into account, and obviously they want to prevent that from happening. And so the fear is that a triggering Article 7 would actually, in the long run, potentially damage the EU more. I mean, let's be honest, when we've had these brinksmanship contests, it seems that the EU has sort of blinked before Orban. Well, Barbara, we know that you didn't really get a weekend because this announcement came out on, on Saturday night and you've been working nonstop since then. So we'll let you and Hans go. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk to law professor Alberto Alamano. He's taken a pretty hardline stance on Hungary, arguing, among other things, that the Hungarian presidency of the Council of the EU should be canceled or postponed. I've asked Nick Vinokur, Politico's editor-at-large, to join me for this conversation since he's been following the tug-of-war between Brussels and Budapest very closely. And then after that, we're going to check in on the Hungarian side. Stay with us. Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Joining me here in the studio is our editor-at-large, Nick Vinokur. Hi. And zooming in from Tokyo, of all places, is Alberto Alamano, a professor of law at HEC Paris. Alberto, thanks so much for being here with us. Hello, everyone. Could you tell us a little bit what's going on? What is the standoff between Orban and the other 26 members of the EU? You know, a lot of people have talked about really coming up to the brink of sort of acceptable behavior for an EU member state. Maybe you can just quickly bring us up to date. For over a decade now, uh, Viktor Orban has defiantly challenged the European project by departing from the very same rules his country has subscribed to in 2005 when Hungary entered the European Union. His government has been found in breach of European law multiple times, be it for taking control of the media, limiting NGO activities, reducing judicial independence, attacking civil rights or LGBT communities. Orban continues to use and abuse of his veto power also to pressure Brussels to unfreeze more frozen cash. Orban doesn't see any limit in its ability to hijack the European Council because basically none among the European leaders has been capable or vocal enough to say, you have crossed a red line or multiple red lines. Now is about time to stop you. So there is a lack of political appetite for the European Council to become antagonistic. You describe how the Council has tried its best to accommodate, to manage the problem of Viktor Orban. There is a rather striking difference between the positions of the member states and the positions of the political parties and the European Parliament. And I know you've been looking at that and looking at the efforts of the European Parliament. Can you describe how the Parliament has differed from the Council? The European Parliament has always been more disturbed by Viktor Orban behavior than by the average member state. And in my view, this has to do with the political incentives of individual members of parliament versus those incentives of the average head of state or government sitting in the council. But the big question is how can a European member country like Hungary today, which has been found in breach of fundamental values, credibly chair the council presidency and the council meetings in which decisions 
we left to be taken about the behavior of such a country. Also, we see now an acceleration on Article 7, which seems to be the remaining tool for the European member states pushed by the parliament to finally fix or mitigate the damage caused on the eve of the European election. So you mentioned that, you know, the issue of Hungary taking over the presidency, but now there's an added irony. Since we have the president of the council, Charles Michel, having announced his early departure, a new prospect has emerged of Viktor Orban not only having the rotating presidency, but also effectively potentially acting as the president of the European Council. Charles Michel is the third president of the European Council and was supposed to stay on the job until November 2024. By giving up the post, Michel is basically creating an unprecedented scenario. The most visible dramatic consequence is that in the absence of a permanent president of the council, it is the president of the rotating presence of the council that has to take over. That basically means Mr. Orban. In order to avoid that, European leaders will have to immediately identify a possible successor. Alberto, let me ask you a foundational question and and one that might be important for people who are not steeped in sort of the political dynamics and treaties and that sort of things. The country that holds the presidency of the rotating council of the EU, what practical impact do they have and, and how might things be different if Hungary and Orban hold that role? The rotating presidency gives its older the power to set the council agenda by chairing virtually all meetings taking place among the European 27 ministers and also representing the council in relations with the other institutions. So any government holding the presidency is expected to act as a honest broker, is a chair, and he has to find compromises. He has to broker agreements. He has to find a way to keep everybody together. He's one of the many presidents of the European Union on the international scene. He goes to the G7. He might meet or she might meet the president of the United States. So having Mr. Orban not only holder of the rotating presidency, but also the permanent president of the council would be slightly problematic, not only in terms of optics, but also in terms of substance, because it could delay It could paralyze the agenda of the European Union. It could boycott from within the entire system. Why don't you trust him to be an honest broker like all the other national leaders who who take on this rotating council presidency, at least try to be? I would say the major obstacle for Viktor Orban to act as an honest broker is that he's conflicted. He has a conflict of interest. On the one hand, He has to defend himself and his government, his own policies, while at the same time, he has to guarantee the public interest uh, of the European Union. And there is a clear tension between the two uh, for every single holder of the position. But in the case of Hungary, this conflict is even more manifest because we know that those breaches of European law have occurred. They were established by the Court of Justice. To go even further, think about Viktor Orban's position on uh, Russia, which is quite an outlier. It seems very difficult to justify his presidency, his leadership role, representing a union who he cannot represent because he doesn't believe in those values, in those policy positions. 
the announcement by Mr. Charmichel to leave early is clearly creating a moment of truth and a wake-up call potentially leading a growing number of countries to realize how dangerous this game is because if they let Orban come in as president, either of the rotating president or as an interim president of the European Council, these might be potentially irreversible, meaning that the decisions that that man, his advisor, will be taking and the way in which they will be hijacking the entire integration process might have irreversible consequences and they will basically lose control. And, you know, European leaders don't like to lose control. You had kind of an idea um, over the summer about just skipping the Hungarian presidency completely. The possibility of suspending the rotating presidency of a member country is something that uh, remains confined to academic speculation. But now with the European Parliament calling on European leaders to block Hungary's presidency by a large minority, we see that this scholarly or textbook scenario might actually become much more relevant. We know that, first of all, all member countries within the council could meet and by qualified majority vote, they can change the order of the member states set to all the presidency. So they could decide now to postpone the Hungarian presidency by six months or by one year. This is something they could do. Another route may be for the two governments holding the presidency at the moment. So the outgoing Spanish one and the Belgian, which is currently in place, they could amend their internal arrangement. This is called trio. So there is a decision that has been shaped by them and they can alter it. And they can, for instance, decide that when the Hungarian presidency will take over, well, the chairmanship of certain meetings, those affecting the interest of Hungary, Article 7 or conditionality regulation, well, those meetings would be presided by their own either Belgian or Spanish representatives. All of this is possible. I'm not sure there is political appetite to create that kind of precedent, even though I consider that it would clearly put a lot of pressure on the Hungarian government and possibly Article 7 the alternative would be much more powerful because should this uh, breach of European law by Hungary be established, this will lead to the suspension of the voting rights by not only solving, uh, let's say, the rotating presidency problem, but also coming as a game changer in the relationship between Budapest and, and Brussels. So it's pretty clear that between the two avenues today, Article 7.2 seems more plausible. But for this, we need either the commission or the one third of the member states to ask for that kind of vote to happen. So that's what we are going to be seeing in the coming weeks, whether that vote will take place. Should it take place, it will be absolutely a game changer. Okay, well, this has been a very intense discussion. I think we'll leave it there. Alberto Almano, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alberto. Thank you for having me. So after hearing about ways to contain Hungary, we'll be hearing from someone who has a different perspective and argues that Hungary's sometimes rebellious approach can actually be invigorating for the EU. So now I'm here in the studio on this frigid Brussels day with Frank Ferreti. He's the executive director of the Brussels branch of the Hungarian government-funded think tank, MCC. And Frank, you came to Brussels, you launched MCC Brussels a little over a year ago with the aim of kind of shaking up the bubble, changing the conversation a bit. How's it going so far? 
I think out of 10, I would give us between six and seven. We've made a, quite a bit of an impact, but we haven't set the world on fire. We have some very interesting uh, ideas. We have some great people working with us. At the moment, we are still finding it's not easy to break through an attempt to throw a quarantine around us just because we're Hungarian. And do you feel like you're talking about different issues or it's more just the fact that you're fostering this debate or some combination of both? bit of both, but I'm mainly interested in not just simply going over the old ground and, and talking about mass migration, because that's been well rehearsed. I'm much more interested in raising more substantive issues to do with uh, political culture, with education, for example. I'm very concerned about the future generations, the quality of education they're getting. And we're also trying to rethink questions to do with the economy, energy. We are rethinking a lot of those questions and presenting what I think is an interesting alternative. Just before this interview, actually, I was on Twitter and I saw, or X, I should say, and I, I saw a missive from the prime minister's top political advisor. And he was saying Brussels is a case of the blind leading the blind on a lot of issues. And one of them was support for the war. Presumably, he was referring to Ukraine. And that's become a source of massive, massive tension between Budapest and most of the other EU countries. So if they're all blind... What do you think Viktor Orban is seeing that everybody else is missing? Orban has always been about the big picture because what he does is he doesn't just simply think about the next election cycle in the way that Western politicians do. He's got a perspective that extends into the next 15, 20 years. And what he's really worried about is that uh, short-term reactions, in a sense, is a kind of geopolitical illiteracy, will create tensions and conflict that are difficult to finish because it's very easy to start a war, but you know, where is it going to end? And we can see this now, for example, uh, when we're discussing Ukraine entering into the EU. A lot of the governments are at one with Orban. They really think that that would be a disaster for the European Union if uh, Ukraine became a member. But instead of having the uh, courage to explain that, they would rather that someone like Orban you know, made a lot of noise about it and they can then pretend that it wasn't us, it was Hungary that's you know, responsible for creating this situation. Well, that's interesting. So you're arguing that basically other countries are happy to let him be sort of the face of dissent while they hide behind. On some issues, that's definitely the case on Ukraine. It's also and has been the case on the issue of mass migration, where Hungary has been unambiguously against it. And we, in some of our earlier conversations on this podcast, we were talking about why we hear a lot of threats from Brussels to um, somehow silence Hungary, whether it's by stripping Orban of, of his right to vote and things at the EU level or canceling the Hungarian presidency. And we talked a bit about some of the reasons why Brussels never actually follows through on, on any of those threats. But, you know, that said, we are seeing even from the European Parliament fresh pushes to trigger what we call Article 7, which is the stripping of the voting rights. And they say that there's been a persistent breach of EU values coming from Hungary. What do you make of that accusation? Well, the way that I look at it is that for a lot of uh, MEPs, if Hungary didn't exist, it would have to be invented. Because from their point of view, Hungary, when it's cast into this role of the hypothesis of evil, serves as a moral contrast where they can basically say, look, Hungary is evil, they're fascistic, they're terroristic, authoritarian. We, on the other hand, are very sensitive, uh, aware people who are not like them. And I think that has become almost like a, a medieval passion play where Hungary is kind of put into this role. And when you actually look at it and you talk to people that, that understand the internal dynamics of Hungary, they will all make the point, okay, Hungary is not run by a bunch of angels, but it is a, a democratic society that's no less democratic than France or Germany or any other country. 
It's got values that are very, very different. The point is, is that either you're going to have to learn to live with another country having values that are different than yours, or you're going to launch a holy crusade, and that's what's happened against Hungary at the moment. I hear your point about, you know, maybe tolerance uh, of difference, but at the same time, if Hungary agreed to play by certain rules and is breaking them, what do you think is the right way to deal with it? Well, when Hungary joined, the rules were very different. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's been more and more rules. I mean, Brussels is very good at rulemaking, and the kind of rules that it makes are ones that are self-consciously designed to um, control or to manage uh, certain troublemakers. So the rules might be actually playing out in an unexpected way in Viktor Orban's favor. Um, We've just learned this week that Charles Michel, the European Council president, will step down early around the time that the Hungarian presidency of the Council of the EU starts. And so that could pave the way, some people are saying, for Orban to become the new de facto interim president of the council. What do you think? How, how would Orban sort of take advantage of that situation? Well, if that came up, that'd be a, a major break for Europe, because whatever you think about Orban, he's a genuine leader. He's also phenomenally pragmatic and is also very sensitive to the national interest of other states. So it would raise the temperature quite a lot in a very interesting way in Brussels. There were a lot of debates. The chair of the Rotating Council presidency historically is kind of supposed to play the mediator, play the honest broker. But some people are saying that it would be a conflict of interest for Orban to chair council meetings that could decide on sanctions against Hungary. Is that a concern? And kind of broadly, would he be able to play this honest broker role? There is always a conflict of interest. I mean, any prime minister in any position in an international organization. So we shouldn't pretend that everything is going to be straightforward. But I do think that uh, he's got a, an old-fashioned, old-school geopolitical uh, streak in him where he recognizes that you don't overplay your hand. He recognizes that compromise is an essential dimension of negotiations, especially with your peers. And he also recognizes that Hungary as a relatively small nation has a very useful role to play because nobody is threatened by Hungarian national power. A very useful uh, role to play in mediating between the conflicting interests between Germany and France in particular. I think that he's ideal for that. I know it sounds absurd to people who regard him as like the incarnation of the devil, but people that know him understand that his main gift is this ability to kind of uh, maneuver, to negotiate, achieve compromise. What are some of the priorities that you anticipate the Hungarian presidency focusing on? Well, I think that the Hungarian presidency is particularly interested in the economic future of Europe. I know that when I talk to people in Budapest, they very often talk about the need to have a economic renaissance in Europe. We're really falling behind China, United States in a number of different respects. I think migration is a real big concern in Budapest. There's the need to develop some new kind of conventions through which the inflow of mass migration can be controlled. Finally, the issue of the family is probably at the core of many of the policies that the Hungarian government is uh, committed to, in a sense, strengthening family and community relations and ensuring that rituals and traditions which are no longer that fashionable, such as marriage, are taken a little bit more seriously. I know it's not possible to social engineer those kinds of things, but that's what policymakers should be focused on. Well, you know, Orban has been accused of, you know, demonizing LGBTQ people in Hungary. You know, when we kind of talk about the family and marriage, I have to ask, is it fair to say that that the Hungarian presidency will be bringing the culture war to Brussels? I think that it's people like me that bring the culture war to to Brussels. (laughs) That's where where I'm here. But I think that... I'm run a think tank, whereas he's, he's the head of a government and he's got a responsible political role to play. I think that it's important to realize that the 
Hungarian government, for all of its sins, for all of its ideals, is not not against the gay and lesbian community. The, the LGBTQ culture is quite flourishing in all the cities within Hungary. I think they make a distinction between what you do in your life, your private affairs, you know, who you love and who you sleep with, and what you do at home, which is entirely everybody's own affairs. What they are concerned with is they don't want what they see as kind of gender ideology, which is principally an adult obsession being recycled through the mass of children when they're five, six, seven, eight year olds. And they're concerned to insulate young people, children in schools from that kind of influence. Last question about the presidency. We had Alberto Alamano on earlier who argued that the presidency should be canceled, not so much as a punishment for Viktor Orban, but as a way to preserve EU values and good governance. Is that fair? I think there's a legitimate argument for canceling the presidency, and that's to do with democracy. I think there are a lot of roles that people have the council presidency, the commission presidency, which are you could argue are extremely powerful and not really accountable. There's that argument, but that's not what he's really getting at. So he's not that interested in democracy. To argue that somehow, unless you have his values in your pocket, you cannot play a responsible role in the EU, really smacks to me of intolerance. And it really means that he hasn't really understood the fundamentals of the Enlightenment values of Europe, the the values of tolerance in particular, and and of freedom, whereby you test out your ideas, you allow your political opponents to have a go in certain situations. And if you disagree with them, then you open your mouth and you argue against it. So if he's so concerned about European values, he should really step up and promote them in the West most effectively that he sees fit. Last question, looking ahead to the uh, special European Council summit at the beginning of February. Funding for Ukraine is going to be the topic. You said the prime minister is a compromiser. Do you think there'll be a deal? There might be a deal. He showed that he's a compromiser by the fact that uh, he walked out of the room at a certain critical moment, uh, which wasn't, I'm sure, and just because he had to have a toilet break, but there are other reasons for that. I think that uh, it's possible, but he will want to be able to demonstrate to Hungarian people, but also to the people of Europe, that there was something important that was given in exchange for that. All right, Frank Ferreti, thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Sarah. And that's all we have for you with this little snapshot of the ongoing Brussels Budapest brawl. Please follow us on your favorite app and rate us. You can also write to us at podcast at politico.eu. Thank you to Deanna Sturris, our senior audio producer, and Christina Gonzalez, Politico's executive producer for audio. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.